We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Crazy and the King. I'm going to tell you right now, um, you, you, you know, I'm for a little more than a year, uh, whenever we record, I, I try to make sure that my face is hydrated. Uh, I always put on cologne, always. Like, I always smell, you know, decent, good. But, you know, I think I can go back to, you know, like putting on beanies and, you know, rough-looking, bleach-stained jackets. By the way, it was snowing this week here in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't know. The only reason I'm teasing you about that are we ever going to use our video? What What do you think we should do with our video? Because yeah. I because I don't think we need to necessarily compete and be like everybody else. We could probably like have fun with our video. I don't I don't know. Can we turn it into bloopers? <laughs> I mean, because we're like always so serious. I don't and know. I, it, I mean, I just wonder. Like, I sit here and I say, you know, like, what can we do with our video? to be a little bit different. Like I think about Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment there when they were uh, recording inclusive AF that Jackie would always have a different background. Um, You know, she was, she was just rocking. She was like all over the place with her background, good stuff. But, and I always said, what can we do to be different with our video? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not the creative here. I'm, I'm the process girl. Um, But uh, probably a good time to to let the uh, audience know we are looking for a part-time social media person um, yep. here at Crazy and the King. So that person hopefully will uh, come up with some amazing ideas for all of this video that we have. Although I will tell you, I'm just always happy to see your face. So if we never Absolutely. do anything with this video and you always show up in a beanie and a dirty ass sweatshirt, I'm going to be right. fine with it. And, and, and let me tell you, I have no idea how like a black sweat jacket will will end up with bleach stains on it or uh, a brand new blue sweatsuit. You, I'll find some bleach at like the bottom on the cuff or something like that. Like everybody in the house is like they hate it when I do the laundry. And the problem is I always do the laundry. So it's really a gamble whether or not, you know, something is going to come out the right way. Um, with with me and and my laundry skills, but everything is well. I'm good, minus the snow. March is coming in, like well, actually March is ending cold, like it's it's in the 20s this entire week. Um, but needless to say, I'm happy. Uh, no complaints. We got a really, really, really good show planned for each and every one of you. I promise you are going to enjoy, you know, what Julie and I have put together. But I want to start with a funny story. You know, we always talk about some stuff at the top. And and I said to myself, you know, this has got to be like somebody playing a trick on me. Th- this has to be somebody actually out in the ecosystem, the digital ecosystem, playing a trick. And when I click on this link, it's going to take me to some site with a whole bunch of pop-ups. 
You know, the one where it captures your screen and says that you are now, uh, your screen is locked, call this 1-800 number, put in your credit card. By the way, my mom did that. Oh, shit, no. Two, like two years ago, my mom calls the 800 number, gives them her credit card. I said, mom, why in the world would you, I've told you a thousand times you have, in, anyway, holding us, because I can't talk about mom and she can't defend herself, but mom's called 800 number. So I clicked on the link and it takes us to a story, Jay, where a guy gave away his dog to the animal shelter because he thought his dog was gay. Yes, North Carolina. Here we are. Uh, so the dog you know, the state that had the bathroom issues and all that other good stuff. The hop. Yep. Go ahead. I'm right. Yeah. That, no. That no. This this story is f- fucking mind-numbingly dumb. Uh, so a guy dropped his dog off at the uh, animal shelter and said, "Hey, I think I have a gay dog, and I definitely don't want a gay dog because the dog was uh, trying to create dominance over another." male dog which probably means he's like super testosterone dog and uh thank the gods this idiot gave up this dog and they got adopted by a wonderful gay couple in north carolina who've been married for 30 plus years i think 30 plus years i i just i i literally i sat there and looked at the screen like i just couldn't believe that the owner allowed himself to think that the dog was gay. But you're absolutely right. I love the fact that the gay couple uh, down in uh, North Carolina grabbed. And and the other part that I celebrated in that, you know, and and this was, you know, this was a real thing, 30 years. Yeah. And I think about, you know, 30 years ago, that would have put us at right around uh, 1993 or so. Mm-hmm. About the same time that I moved to Washington, D.C. from Texas. And I said, I wonder you know, what they were experiencing in the 90s, early 90s, with their marriage. Yeah, I mean... Because you got to assume they had some period of dating prior to that. So what were they experiencing, you know, in the 90s? Of course, I didn't really have a number of points of reflection because I was a lot younger, not as conscious as I am right now, not as, you know, in tune with some of those or many of those social issues. But, But that was a part of the story that stood out like, They've stood the test of time, and I appreciated that. Yep. And and now they get to give this wonderful puppy, who they renamed Oscar after Oscar Wilde, uh, a, a fantastic home and, and probably a much, much better and different experience for Oscar to be with them than the first guy. Absolutely. So let's talk about some serious stuff. Memphis, um, brand new airport, terminal. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, that is. Brand new airport, terminal. and. I found a story that talks about how some artwork or a piece of artwork was removed. So when Memphis opened up this new terminal, they had a team to commission artwork from a number of local artists. I would say local because outside of the Memphis area, I looked at the names and I couldn't necessarily refer to them from anything other than this particular story. Like I didn't know of them. Or, or see any trails leading to them. So I loved the fact that the uh, the um, airport decided that they wanted to commission work, invest in work from local artists. But there was one artist who got his uh, work taken down. Yeah, so Tommy Ka, 
um, who is a Memphis-based artist. Um, actually, and I find this really interesting, the painting that he had approved by the Memphis Airport um, Art Commission and the Urban Art Commission was a representation of an Elvis, an Asian Elvis impersonator. Stop. Pause right there. And, and I'm, I'm, I just want to pause for a moment because I still want you to talk. You brought it up. You inserted it in. But I just think about how many people impersonate Elvis. Yeah, a lot. A lot. A lot. And, and, and so the airport got some feedback that they found this to be um, an inappropriate depiction of Elvis. And a lot of also um, very demeaning and, and racist voices towards the artist and the thought process in generally. Um, unfortunately, the Memphis airport decided to temporarily remove the painting of uh, Asian Elvis and are working on what the next step is. So is that actually having another work commissioned by Tommy Ka? Is it putting the work back? Is it leaving an empty space on the wall? We don't know. Yeah, and Tommy Ka is T-O-M-M-Y-K-H-A, T-O-M-M-Y-K-H-A. And if you go there on his Instagram page, you actually will see uh, an image of the actual piece of art. It's from February 16th, and it's still, of course, up on his Instagram page. And what's really frustrating in this $200 million brand new concourse, $200 million, they invested $1.5 million in uh, commissioned artwork, is that his was the only one taken down. Now, what they said when they originally uh, you know, were considering this, that they weren't going to do anything that profiled celebrities or high profile figures, but they made an exception in his case because it was, it was a bit of a tribute to Elvis. And that's like, you know, what do you call him? A native, native is it the native son? Is, is that what how you refer to a person? I, like I think an Elvis? So. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So like so the 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 challenge is that the Urban Art Commission uh said that they are committed to exploring options to help protect artists in future situations such as this, because Tommy received, you know, Julie, you talked about the comments. But Tommy received a lot of racism, homophobia, um, and just real, real mean dialogue from people's comments. And that's like unfortunate. And again, I just go back to the question, how many people impersonate folks like Elvis, Dolly Parton, Michael Jackson, Prince? I mean, we could go down a list. These are not figures that are only you know, emulated by people from their same demography or ethnicity, this, these are global figures. And for people to be that sensitive is just really, really, really disheartening for me. T tell us what Tommy Ka said. So he said, well, I believe people are free to speak their minds. I do not agree that the removal was the right solution. For many years, I've created work that explores my own experiences of becoming an artist in the South. I love Memphis still, and I love the countless contributions from many voices and people that have that have Memphis what it is to me. Excuse me, that have made Memphis what it is to me, home. Yeah, and let me tell you, the 
the piece there when I when I read his and I'm always, you know, trying to dance through this equation of understanding. And I've often said to you, Jay, uh, two of the most powerful words are love and process. I'm often trying to dance through that sequence of processing, you know, and I said to myself, I get it. You know, dude doesn't want his artwork taken down. I don't think that it should have been taken down, but that brings in the whole conversation around the Confederate statues, or that brings in other conversations around um, Black Lives Matter type um, uh, artifacts, things that are taking place. That brings up, you know, it brings up so many challenging considerations for each and every one of us, which is why, again, while I agree with this story, it just reminds us how complex it is for us to navigate the nuance of getting along in terms of relationship with one another. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I would absolutely agree. And I would take it even a step farther to further to say that it's amazing how quickly an organization will act, react when white people are uncomfortable versus the very same organizations who will not act when people of color are uncomfortable. Yep. I think we'll talk a little bit about that a little little later in the show, later in the show. Uh, So making the case for um, philanthropy's role in the movement to reimagine criminal justice. Now, there is a great deal of conversation around criminal justice, criminal reform, justice reform, just looking at how the penal system, the judicial system, the legal system, all of that court system. There's so much conversation around how do we have and present a different solution. While we understand that folks need to be locked up, folks need to go through some period of, um, I'll call it retribution, salvation, reclamation. Um, People need to go through some period where they kind of sit on the sideline and figure things out, if you will. There's still a huge demand for us to change our systems. Yeah. And I mean, and what an amazing conversation that we're having on the regular much more often. So we've talked about, you know, on the sidelines, I think criminal justice reform um, for a long time, you know, especially sort of post Clinton um, super predator um, mandatory minimums. And we've seen what that's done to our country and what it's done um, to predominantly uh, black and brown men. Um, and how it's created greater inequities for the same crimes and and just to our society in general. So this is definitely something that needs funding and needs to drive um, a conversation. So when you say it needs funding, I'm I'm wondering just just I'm I'm curious. Do you feel like our present criminal justice system is doing more harm than good? Or or do you feel like it really is doing more good, period? No, I I think it the system is completely broken. Um, You know, we have massive amounts of death by by gun in this country. We have massive inequity in sentencing and um, the way that crimes are perceived and adjudicated based on color and gender 
and a lot of other things. And so, yeah, I mean, we have the highest prison population in the world and the highest gun death rate in the world. So I don't think anyone could say, at least I don't think, um, that it's doing more good than harm. What about you? Uh, I, I would say, you know, again, uh, considering the large population of individuals uh, that are coming from black and brown communities, from poor white communities, from other underserved communities, the way that those individuals are being penalized versus, let's say, a person who's doing white collar crime, if you will, um, I, I would absolutely say, and and I would also say, given the recent change, and when I say recent, five maybe 10 years around the legalization of drugs, I would absolutely say, you know, when you consider our prison system mushrooming to 2.2, 2.5 million people, I don't think that it's doing good. And the reason why I struggle with, no, let me say it differently. I know it's not, it's more, it's doing more harm than good. I know that to be the case. And the reason why I say that emphatically is because of the stain that it places on individuals after they sat on that sideline that I mentioned. When you can't get housing, when you struggle to get work in a kitchen to be just a bus boy or someone that's washing dishes, when you struggle to be um, able to work for a delivery company, you know, a lot of these frontline jobs that we talk about often, and you can't even get those. Um, you you can't live with with certain family members that may be in subsidized housing, or you run or they run the risk of losing their subsidization. I, it, I absolutely feel like the system is doing more harm than good, and I think it's a really good story. Uh, it's a story over on the Bridgespan Groups website. Again, the title is, I didn't say it right the first time, but the title of the article, it's a March 17th article, Making the Case, Philanthropy's Role in the Movement to Reimagine Criminal Justice. And the bottom line is, in that entire article, what they are saying is, you, you, you in the philanthropic space, you play a role in this conversation. It's not just community organizers. It's not just the, the, the um, politicians. It's not just regular citizens or corporate America. Philanthropy, you play a role. And so this is one of those things where I would share this article. If I'm a listener and I'm inside of an organization and they have a corporate social responsibility department, this is an article that I would share with them. This is one of those articles that may resonate, may land well, Maybe something that you then disseminate to ERNs or ERGs inside of the organization. And it may be one of those external initiatives that the organization picks up. We have some things that we're doing internally. Hey, we think that this may be something good for us to contribute to externally. And it may be of interest to uh, employees inside of the organization. So that's the reason why I highlighted the article. And, you know, it gave some quick takeaways. I won't mention them right here, but you can go out and read the article again. It's titled Making the Case, Philanthropy's Role in the Movement to Reimagine Criminal Justice. Love it. And a great way to end this uh, top portion of our episode is a great story from the Wall Street Journal that women are winning bigger pay raises 
from the U.S. labor boom. So in yeah. February, February uh, women's wages were up 4.4% from a year earlier um, compared to a rise of 4.1% in male wages. And that makes the sixth straight month that women's wage growth has outpaced men's wage growth. Yeah, about 31% of the women who changed jobs during the pandemic, about 31% of them saw an increase in their uh, compensation package. Or shall I say, of the 31% of women that changed jobs, more than 30% of them uh, said that the compensation package was higher than in their previous role. So it's looking like, you know, women are trying to kind of claw back a little bit of that loss. And we've talked about that when we did our uh, roundtable with uh, Facebook, you know, last year, right around this time last year, that was one of the statistics that we talked about how many women had lost work, you know, and how many months it was going to take for them to kind of get back what they had lost. And so this right here is a promising article. It's still a little disappointing because there was a stat in there that said more than 62% of part-time workers are women more than 62% taking on a part-time job, perhaps in addition to their full-time job. So, you know, uh, I like the fact that they are getting their money back. I think that's a good sign. It's trending in the right direction. Yes, absolutely. We've got to make up that gap. So this week, uh, we decided there was no other way to close out International Women's History Month than to focus on women who are and have made history. So we will be right back after this short ad break to uh, dive right in. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. All right, so we're going to do our In a Flash segment. Uh, this week, uh, well, shall I say the BNC shuttered its doors last Friday. Mackenzie Scott still remains on the tear, giving away billions, $3.8 billion since June of 2021. Lotta Lucci. And just a reminder, the pandemic is far from being over. Like, I know stages are opening up on countries all across the, the globe, and, and restaurants are welcoming diners. And folks like Julie are still struggling to get on certain flights. I think you got a little savage on Twitter last week. Protests are still happening all over the world. Jamaicans were a bit unhappy. Uh, They raised their fists. They presented and wore items that donned a pair of shackled wrists and phrases like apologize now as Prince William and Kate were visiting the country, like not the sort of welcome you had wished for. And where the hell is Clarence? Speaking of art, uh, a new exhibit, I Am the Glory by Stephen Towns, reflects the role of African-American labor in building the U.S. economy. It's in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, uh, a population of about 15,000 people. And there is an employee alleging that Microsoft spends about $200 million a year on bribes and kickbacks via its foreign contracts business. Now, Microsoft says the claims were addressed, and you can read about that over in The Verge, and that too is a lot. 200 million in bribes, that's a lot. But
We're going to continue talking. All right. This week, uh, an emphatic record of history. Uh, Jordan and I, looking at you, Jordan and I have the opportunity from week to week to not only record, but in a way, capture history. That That's what we love about the show. In a way, uh, we'll be able to listen five years from now and remember how we felt, what the sounds were with regard to certain events and moments, not in just our lives, but in lives of all of our listeners and the world. This week is one of those opportunities to really capture some of that thought and emotion. Absolutely. And we're going to do it with three different clips that we kind of gathered from the ecosystem, things that happened over the last 30 days during the month of March, International Women's History Month. And first up is a clip from Yaba Blay, who's an author. Have a listen. When mm-hmm. you say, how do I be an ally? What what we're hearing is how do you teach me how to care? Teach me how to care. And you're saying you, either you care and figure it out. Think critically. Mm-hmm. And thank to- you for saying it that way, Glennon, because that's that that explains my visceral response. I don't know how else to explain it to you. It's not about a right or wrong. I know there are people like, well, damn, I'm just trying to help. I said I want to be an ally. I'm letting you know what it sounds like, how I receive it in my ears and in my spirit. You are asking me to teach you how to care about something that is so basic. If you recognize us as human beings, period, it is so basic. Mm -hmm. And now you're asking me to take time to prove it to you. Mm. And, and also, I don't have time. Also, if our children, if white, white people's children were dying, were, we would just figure it out. We wouldn't be going, how can, can people have a podcast for us? Like, can people, <laughs> we would figure it out, mm-hmm. but we don't care enough to figure Not it out. Not only would you figure it out, you would demand that everybody support it. It wouldn't even be an option because we would call that human. Mm-hmm. That whiteness is the default for human. We're not all human in that way. So as I said, Yaba Blay is an author. She actually wrote a book titled One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. You can find her on Twitter at Yaba Blay, Y-A-B-A-B-L-A-Y. She was actually a guest. So what you heard in that brief clip, she was a guest on a podcast. The podcast is titled We Can Do Hard Things, and the host of that is Glennon Doyle. She is the author of Untamed, a book that was released at the very start of the pandemic and became a lifeline of sorts for millions of individuals. Glennon, and let me tell you, if you had not seen that, if you go out on the internet, you can find the clips on Twitter and YouTube. And Glennon and, uh, who was the soccer player sitting next to her? Um, 
can't think of her name right now. I apologize. But Glennon and her guest host took it on the chin. They were so present in that conversation. No emotion, no energy. They were present, Jay, in that conversation. Did you see the same? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just love the the bluntness, right? The, the figure it out. Why are you asking me to teach you how to be a better human or a human at all in, in a lot of respects? And yeah, she really hit I, on uh, that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to just say um, she she was so <laughs> you're right. I mean, like she was so incredibly direct, passionately direct. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of those things where, you know, you have, when you are in, in the face of someone who is that in tune, um, you know, to me, Julie, you know that they're not just simply giving you uh, academic leanings, that they're not just giving you um, polished messaging, that they're not giving you um, what they think might be the algorithm of going viral. She, she was fully present and in her right mind and just gave you how she is feeling. And I think I watched that clip like 30 times. I've listened to the entire podcast twice, but I've watched that clip like 30 times because there was so much in there. She even talked about allyship. I don't, I don't know if you saw that part. Yeah. I, I love that. It, the allyship versus being an accomplice. And, you know, when she first said it, I was like, okay, how do, how do we like, what's the language? How do we square this? And then when she was like, well, well, like what do you mean when you say, how do you square this? Well, when, when you think of an accomplice, you think of someone who helps you do something bad. Right. Okay. Um, okay, okay but then okay. she, she, she completely turned it and she said, it's basically like you're my ride or die, right? You are getting in the car with me. You have skin in the game. You have some sort of commitment to this relationship. It's not just you, you know, hanging out uh, at home and talking about things that should be done. Like you're in the car, you're, you're on the go. Let me tell you something, Julie, you said it. Um, and I want you to say it again, because I think sometimes when we are having these conversations around allyship, you remember last year, my presentation was less allyship, more action. What Yaba Blade was saying is we need you to take more action. And yes, we want you to be an accomplice. We want you to catch the charge with us. We want you to also be convicted of being guilty of trying to get better to generate progress. We want you absolutely tethered to us hand in hand, working towards whatever we say is extremely important. I love how she flipped. What would you say? Square this. I love how she squared this with the definition of, yeah, that's what it means. And that's exactly what I want you to do. Yeah. I, I loved it. I haven't, uh, listen to this podcast yet, the Glennon Doyle one, but it is like actually added to my list today. So I'm very excited about more Yaba Blay in our life. Love that. Love that. Love that. So next, we want you to imagine a world. (laughs) I have to smile because, you know, when I, I I caught this one when I was driving uh, a couple of weeks back, I was driving, listening to uh, Progress uh, on Sirius XM and 
this person was a guest on the show that I was listening to. So the person, uh, this, this next clip comes from a person who says, imagine a world where women talk over men in the boardroom. By the way, before I finish that, I just said something to you. And you know, I don't know if I've ever said this to you, Julie, but when we are in conversation and it's better now, it's better now in year number four than in year number one, because remember year one and two and most of three, certainly a good portion of three, we weren't recording. Definitely in one or two, we didn't have video going. So we didn't see one another. It was merely working off of pauses. So one thing that I still struggle with is having conversation with you and our listener not saying Torin is talking over Julie. Really? Never said that to you before. No. Never said it to you before right now. And there are a number of times where I want, like we just did it on the square up piece. I just didn't want to get, I didn't want to get too far away from the square up because I wanted people to attach your definition to that in the moment and not, well, when did she say what? So you need that back and forth. And there are so many sensitive people out there listening that they may say, well, why does Torin always talk over Julie? I think that's hilarious. I I, I, I swear. There you go. So our next person is, she says, imagine a world where women talk over men in the boardroom, where women are handed the bill first in restaurants and where women resist working for a male boss and where women won't read books written by men. Have a listen. more clearly it helps to flip things round. So if you're a man, try this. Imagine living in a world in which you're routinely patronized by women. Imagine having your views ignored or your expertise frequently challenged by them. Imagine trying to speak up in a meeting only to be talked over by female colleagues. Imagine women's subordinates resisting you as a boss merely because of your gender. And imagine women superiors promoting other women, even if they're less talented than you. Imagine people almost always addressing the woman you're with before you. Imagine writing a book and finding that half the population is reluctant to read it because it's written by a man. Imagine being trolled by women on social media threatening violence against you merely for expressing an opinion. Not great, is it? See, the trouble is that privilege is often invisible. Most men simply don't notice it until it's flipped round like this. And why would they? I struggle to notice my white privilege. Yet in everyday life, it's as if men are swimming with the current in a river and women are swimming against it. So the men see the banks racing past them and congratulate themselves for swimming so powerfully. And they look at the women struggling to make headway against the current and think, why can't they swim as fast as me? They're obviously not as good.
All right. So that is Mary Ann Seigart. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Author of The Authority Gap, where she delves into unconscious bias in our everyday lives and reveals the scale of the gulf that still exists between the genders. And it's funny. I just want to go back to one thing you said. I have never felt like you were talking over me. Um, in fact, some a lot of times I feel like I'm talking over you or I'm getting ahead of the game. This is just how friends have a conversation. Um, and so just to our listeners who have complained, it's all good. Thank you, ladies. Um, but, you know, that I don't have to imagine that world because I, I live in a world where I'm subjected to that every single day. Right. And so I really thought that it was interesting how she started to create a a scenario where a man could imagine not having all of that privilege. Yeah. She talks about boys being taught that they are more clever and better at math at the age of five. And then at six and seven years old, when boys um, and girls start to select people to participate on their teams, boys select boys for their teams. And that's when you start to see girls wanting to select the boys for their teams rather than and over some of their young girlfriends because they are being socialized, according to Marianne, I believe it's Seagart, according to Marianne and certainly a, a whole lot of other individuals, boys are propositioned or positioned as being superior better at certain things, a number of things, a lot of things, too many things. Because of that, you know, young girls are internalizing this and now they find themselves feeling a bit less. And Mm -hmm. we start to see why that formation of that imposter syndrome begins to fester. You know, I got to tell you, you know, personally, uh, I have a granddaughter who's 10 and my granddaughter, you know, I would say from five when she could start picking things out, maybe a little bit sooner than that, but real heavy between that five-year-old and eight, nine-year-old. And she's slowly coming out of it, if you will. And I don't even want to say coming out of it. Let me just say it this way. Five to eight, nine years old, you couldn't buy her anything girlish. No Barbie, no pink bicycle. Like I literally bought her one of these gloves that was the Incredible Hawk that made the sound and lit up and big and loved it. Try to put her in something frilly and and girly, hated it, hated that. And and I was like, well, we're going to, you know, I'm going to support what she likes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy her the things that she likes. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. She doesn't need to be conditioned to think that other women are less than the men around her. And she doesn't need to be conditioned to think that the men around her are better than her. It becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, right? There's so much time that women work against each other and men certainly aren't going to, at least at this point, step in and sort of take up our mantle. Mary had a lot of good solutions though, right? Is for men to kind of start taking stock of what kind of time are they taking up and consuming Um, all of the oxygen in the room, I'll say, um, in spaces where women are present. And I love this one, to provide elevation and applause to women. 
right? To be more active with regard to women. And I think that is something that men have to develop a comfort with. Yeah. Um, She calls it the fantastic group. Yeah. And finally, my favorite one of all of her recommendations was to relegate chauvinists, misogynists, and resistant men to the class of the dinosaurs. Bye boys. Class of (laughs) the dinosaurs. (laughs) You know, you know, I'm smiling because uh, and I, I th- these are little subtle drops. What was the what was the joint for 2019? Dinosaurs, lions, and diversity. Dinosaurs, get rid of them dinosaurs. Hell yes, let's get rid of them. So Mary was on it. I loved that clip. For those of you listening, make sure you listen again. And finally, finally, this is where history comes in. Finally, Julie and I and you. We'll be able to listen to this five years from now, 10 years from now, and we'll be able to kind of replay what we were thinking about when this moment happened. And last week, the Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson had to make a number of statements. This is a statement that I don't think got enough press, enough airtime, and I wanted to make sure that Julie and I captured it in Crazy and the King. This is about perseverance. So I want to end my time today by asking you this question. On behalf of the young people I visited with last Friday in South San Francisco, and for the many others across the country who are watching this confirmation hearing today, what would you say, Judge Jackson, to all those young Americans, the most diverse generation in our nation's history, what do you say to some of them who may doubt that they can one day achieve the same great heights that you have. Thank you, Senator. Um, That was very moving. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to young people. I appreciate it very much. I do it a lot for the reasons that you have articulated. I... um, I hope to inspire people to try to follow um, this path because I love this country. Because I love the law. Because I think it is important that we all invest. in our future and the young people are the future. And so I want them to know that they can do and be anything. And I'll just say that um, I will tell them what uh, an anonymous person said to me once I was walking through Harvard yard, my freshman year, as I mentioned, I went to, Uh, public school, and I didn't know anything about Harvard until um, my debate coach 
took me there to enter a speech competition. And I thought, this is a great university. It was basically one of the only ones I'd seen. And I said, maybe I'll apply when I'm a senior. But I get there and whoa, (laughs) so different. I'm from Miami, Florida. Boston is very cold. Um, It was... um, it was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, <laughs> um, who knew all about <laughs> knew all about Harvard, and, and that was not not me. And I think the first semester I was really homesick. I was really questioning. Um, do I belong here? Can I, can I make it in this environment? And I was walking through the yard in the evening and a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk. And she looked at me and I guess she knew how I was feeling. And she leaned over as we crossed and said, Persevere. I would tell them to persevere. Thank you, Judge Jackson. You don't have to hope. I'll tell you right now, you do inspire. You are an inspiration. And I will associate myself with the... uh, closing words of my colleague and my brother, Senator Booker, that I too refuse to let anyone steal my joy. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So I watched that moment live and you caught it. See, I didn't see it live. I caught it. I got lucky, just happened to have the hearings on at that time. And I was kind of walking around sort of listening while I was doing some other things. And I had to stop and take that moment in because it was so powerful. And through this whole process, she has just just shown extraordinary vulnerability and ability to be transparent about the things in her life. And this was one of those moments where everybody needs that woman to say persevere, right? Just persevere. Incredible. Yeah, it it absolutely, it absolutely was incredible. And for me, it was a real complex moment because again, I didn't have the luxury of seeing it live. And although if I would, I, I believe if I would have saw it, live, I would have had the same emotional reaction to it, like that whole fallback motion, like, you know, you put your hand on your chin and you're just in a real thoughtful posture. You're taking it in. Um, and, and what I found really interesting about that, that two or three minutes where she talked about perseverance, where she talked about what she would tell other young people, she at the same time is rewinding through all of the experiences that she went through. Like yeah. she, she's being positive and 
and emblematic of this incredible desire to do and be a spirit of good and force and inspiration for these other people that she would be talking to. And right behind her, literally, is this rush of all of these experiences that she had to stand in the face of, to include the moment in which she was sitting in that chair. Yeah. I I mean, it did feel like a a, a recall moment. You could see in her eyes that she was reliving that moment and and to talk about sort of the the difference in in both class and race um, in such an elegant way when you think about, you know, all those young men who are being groomed to to attend Harvard and and to do all of that right now. And also, I I think, you know, she received a lot of praise. Cory Booker gave an adoring speech that drew me to tears, uh, and I think it did to her as well. Um, But, you know, as always, there are assholes out there with people like Shelley Washington calling her a chick, Charlie Kirk, ugh, unintelligent, and uh, Mr. Tucker Carlson um, called her just a tanned version of Biden. Yeah, yeah. And this uh, one guy, but one of the good guys uh, was a guy on on Twitter, Tristan Snell. Uh, He said KBJ just withstood Cruz, Hawley, Blackburn, and Cotton. And then he says her reward with a question mark putting up with Kavanaugh, Alito, Barrett, Roberts, Gorsuch, and Thomas every day for the rest of her career. Like, I absolutely love that one. But the best tweet to me, Jay, the best tweet, at least the best one that I saw, was by a guy by the name of Clarence Patton. And he is quoting Ben Sass because Ben Sass asked her, what judge would you mold yourself on? And her response was, I don't have to mold myself on a judge. I am a judge. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so to wrap up uh, Women's History Month, we want to celebrate these uh, beautiful and amazing women and take a quick break and then jump into some more amazing women in our Her Voice segment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. All right. Our Her Voice segment is where we amplify women that are making moves. And we have two this week uh, because we, you know, we've done a lot of women in the show. Not do too much, but we want to bring the show to a close. So <laughs> never, according, never to the four A's, yeah, the, according to the four A's, there are 22,000 ad agencies across the continent of North America. Less than 1% of them are owned by women. So a shout out this week to Zimbizi founder, and CEO Gene Freeman and Cornette president and owner Christy Heiler, who this week launched Own It. And Own It is the first database of women-owned ad agencies. They've also created a podcast, and the guests on the podcast will be women 
and non-binary ad agency owners who tell their stories to help empower other women to start their own shops. Love, love, love what Zimbezi founder and Cornette president are doing through Own It. Yep. And you can find them on Twitter at ZMBZ Agency. ZMBZ Agency. And, and let I'll- me just say this real quick. You know, mm-hmm. real quick, Jay, just to, and when you go over to Zambezi's website, they're serious because they are being very, very transparent. They have their Zambezi values, nine of them. And then right below their values, there's a little statement that says what makes us different makes us better. And then they put up their diversity stats. Most uh, agencies are not willing to be that transparent. So I appreciate that you're not finding it in a report. It is actually on their website. Yes, love it. And also then our second, uh, her voice this week is sitting at the intersection of people and our planet, uh, focused on creating solutions that serve everyone are Noemi Jimenez and Sam Harstuck of QB Consulting. And you can also find them on Twitter at consult underscore QB. Love, love, love the work that Sam and Noemi are doing. Uh, It's been a while since I've talked to them, probably about six or seven months. Uh, One just had a baby. They're doing beautiful things, growing the firm down there. One is in California, one's in Texas. Love, love, love the work that they are doing over at QB Consulting. Our quote this week, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We want to be honest. We want to be respected. We want to feel good. And that's exactly how I show up. That was said by Allie Love. She's a Peloton instructor and fitness influencer on her popular Sunday Peloton workout class. You got a Peloton? I do not. I've got a treadmill. You got a treadmill. Okay, got it. I have neither. Well, let me just say this. I do. We have a treadmill, but the weight limit on the treadmill is like 240 and I'm 230. So I'm like, we ain't even going to, I need a little more than 10 pounds distance. So I don't have a Peloton and I don't get on the treadmill. There we go. And uh, today is a quick mention. March 31st is the International Transgender Day of Visibility. Yes, it is. uh, Yes, it is. And you got a name drop, don't you? I've got two name drops this week. The first one I'm going to say is a joint name drop from from you and I to uh, Adam Gordon and the team over at Candidate ID, who earlier this week announced their acquisition. Um, Adam is one of the best guys in our industry and so excited for he and his team to go on this next journey and to uh, get acquired is amazing. And the second one's a a little bit harder. So this uh, last week, um, the Foo Fighters lost their drummer, Taylor Hawkins. And I I think that we all can know and appreciate what music does for us as as humans and where it so often meets us where we need to be met. And the Foo Fighters is one of those bands for me. And Taylor Hawkins was an incredible talent um, and an incredible personality. So my love goes out to the entire Foo Fighters uh, band and Taylor's wife and kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I'm glad that you uh, you'd raise that as an issue because he was trending and they absolutely said it was untimely. So I didn't read further to see what possibly happened, but all of the comments, so many of them 
were positive. So many of the comments talked about his energy, how he presented. He was always smiling. Like you have to absolutely appreciate, you know, when people um, unfortunately depart and the timing is just something that is so un unexpected. Speaking of which, um, you know, just some prayers go out. We, we didn't get the chance to do this uh, two weeks ago, last week when we recorded, but to all of those who are out there who may have lost family in that uh, plane that went down, that Chinese flight that went down. So for all of them that may be experiencing that untimely death as well, we, um, we send our heart and prayers out to each and every one of you. And we close reminding you like that to just be a better human. Be more empathetic. Be more intentional about the work that you do. Be more proximate. Get close to the stories and the people you say you care about, those that are unfamiliar to you. And be more transparent. Julie and I stay on the journey of transparency. We just want you to be a better human. Find your voice. Build better teams, better culture, better workplaces. For now, Jay and I are how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.